You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. This past November 16th, the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security kicked off its 33rd annual review of the Field of National Security Law Conference. As part of the event, ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security Chair Stephen Preston hosted a special keynote address featuring General David H. Petraeus, former CIA director and former commander of U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. With 37 years of military service, General Petraeus discussed his recent book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, and the lessons he's learned over decades of military leadership. Today, we're thrilled to bring you General Petraeus's compelling remarks from this event. His perspectives offer enlightening and deeply relevant insights amidst today's global conflicts. As always, thanks for tuning in. We are honored to have as our featured speaker today, General David Petraeus, a graduate of West Point and a PhD from Princeton. General Petraeus wore the uniform of our country for 37 years, culminating in six consecutive commands at the general officer level, including five in combat. Those commands include command of the surge in Iraq, the United States Central Command, in command of U.S. and coalition forces in Afghanistan. Upon his retirement from the Army in 2011, he was appointed director of the Central Intelligence Agency, where I had the privilege of serving as his general counsel. Perhaps I should say he had the burden of having me as his general counsel. No, it was a privilege. Uh, So now General Petraeus is a partner of the KKR investment firm in New York and head of its global institute, He's a well-known commentator on international security and military affairs. With the prominent British historian Andrew Roberts, General Petraeus has just come out with a book titled Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. The book is both accessible to the lay reader, enlightening to the national security professional, and makes a significant contribution to the scholarship in the field of military history. General, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining us. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. I'm I'm here really for one reason, and it's not to sell books, although the books are for sale. It's because of this guy right here who did serve extraordinarily well at the CIA for quite a significant period and a period of very significant achievements. The ones that are publicly known include the operation that brought Osama bin Laden to justice, There's a number of others about which we cannot comment. Stephen was really, I think, the prototypical operational lawyer. Now, he had obviously a lot of other responsibilities as your general counsel, but I know that this room is actually full of a number of individuals who have done ops law for either the various services in our military or for other elements in our government, DOJ and so forth. And I should just note up front that I really valued very, very highly the operational lawyers that I was privileged to serve with, especially those in, as you mentioned, these five combat commands as a general officer. In fact, I valued their contributions so highly that when we were deployed, when I was a division commander, the great 101st Airborne Division Air Assault at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where I commanded the installation as well as the division, 
I figured out how to bring not just the entire division's staff judge advocate corps, which of course normally would deploy with a division, but then we concocted a scheme to bring the entire installation staff judge advocate office with us as well by mobilizing some reserves so that we brought all of them with me. And they were hugely important in a whole variety of activities that we undertook that extended, frankly, well beyond what you might just think of of helping the commander understand the application of rules of engagement and interpreting a variety of other items on the battlefield when it comes to adhering to the laws of land warfare in the Geneva Convention. Very, very good advice at critical junctures. Things that seemed common sense to us afterwards were not common sense at the time. I'll give you a great example, which was we ended up with a lot of detainees. Now, division is a tactical organization. You don't have a detainee force that is structured to deal with this. You only have a single military police battalion. So we were asking ourselves, we put together a force of individual soldiers, you know, what should the guidelines be for this? And we came up with what seems to be common sense approach that we should treat them in accordance with the Geneva Convention as if they were prisoners of war. Although you remember, technically, we were not at war with Iraq. There was some kind of other legal scheme for what it was we were doing. And again, it seemed very obvious to me that that's how we should deal with this until those above us developed sufficient detainee operations capacity that we could do what we were supposed to do, which is push them to hire. It turned out that we were the only division that actually settled on that particular approach. And every one of the other ones ended up with serious detainee issues as a result of undertaking activities that should not have been taken. And then, of course, we had the major issue at Abu Ghraib prison that there's no half-life for that. That is an indelible stain on our service. And it is a continued source of damage to us, especially in the Middle East and the Islamic world. Again, one very small example, but it was one that was actually crucially important. And it was repeated many, many times in a variety of different endeavors. We also set about having the very first interim provincial council in Iraq. When I was pushed north, the division, we were told to air assault north on very short notice to Mosul, Iraq, in the northern part of the country, not where we were supposed to end up. We didn't even have maps for the area until we printed them the night before we did the air assault. We understood nothing about it whatsoever, frankly. We didn't even have the district boundaries that were accurate. And so we set about learning about it. And I figured, you know what, we need some help. Let's see if we can get an interim provincial council. And so my right-hand man for that entire endeavor was the installation staff judge advocate, full colonel, who I brought over there. We set about every day doing nothing but from literally from dawn until well after dusk, trying to understand the context of the human terrain in Nainoa province, Mosul is the capital, so that we could achieve a provincial council that was representative of all the elements of that province and get the representation roughly right in their particular population density to ensure that we would end up with a a truly representative body that would achieve majority rule, but also minority rights and serve the people again to the extent of the resources that we had. And again, it was my lawyer who was my right-hand man. I don't think that they trained you in law school how to form a provincial council, but he was extraordinary in helping me do just that. Why don't we back up a bit? I want to talk a little bit about your book. So after 37 years in the Army, 11 of those in general officer positions, 
I imagine you know a thing or two about leadership and strategy. One of the central elements of the book is the concept of strategic leadership and its potential to be outcome determinative in the battlefield in warfare. Tell us, what is this concept of strategic leadership? Well, it's the biggest takeaway, we hope. Again, the great Andrew Roberts, Lord Roberts of Belgravia now, I might add, he was elevated to a peerage while we were doing the book. The biggest takeaway that we want from the book is that individuals realize the critical component of strategic leadership when it comes to conflict, really to anything, any endeavor, the business world, it's true. I'll explain it for Netflix, for example. But the strategic leader is the one at the very, very top, the senior civilian president of the United States, and then the battlefield commander. Each of them has to get the big ideas right. They have to understand the context, the nature of the particular conflict the geographic terrain, the human terrain, the enemy, the friendly, all aspects of war. And they have to craft the right strategy. This is particularly important, obviously, for the battlefield commander. You then have to communicate the big ideas, the strategy, throughout the breadth and depth of the organization and to everyone who has a stake in the outcome of the conflict. You have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. That's the third task. And this is what we normally think of as leadership, by the way. This is the example the leader provides. It's the energy, the inspiration. It's attracting great people, keeping them, developing them. It's allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else. It's how the leader spends his or her time. That's a crucial component. The way you drive the execution of a campaign plan is these endless meetings that you have. And you've got to make sure that you are doing them with the right people with the right frequency. It's going out to see it for yourself on the battlefield, going on patrol with soldiers, which we did at least twice a week. But again, it's everything you do every day of the week. It's a few times a week, twice a week, once a week, every other week, monthly, quarterly. There's a real rhythm to all of this. And we had a very, very carefully refined. I used this explicit intellectual construct for strategic leadership for the first time as I took command of the surge in Iraq and then also at Central Command, Afghanistan and the CIA. And then there's a fourth task that you have to get right, and that is to determine how you need to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. One other element that I should have mentioned in overseeing the implementation of the big ideas, you have to determine what are the metrics that are important. And they should be very, very rigorous. There have to be very careful definitions. You know, this is, again, where lawyers help you, just brilliant people, really. But the lawyer's training to think through, to research, and then to methodically lay out a case is hugely important. And when it comes to metrics, you've got to get the right ones. And then you have to ensure that the information is accurate, that the numbers really are honest. As an example, the body count in Vietnam was both the wrong metric, and then it turned out increasingly to be dishonest over time as well because of pressure around it. That fourth test, determining how you refine the big ideas, that should be on your battle rhythm. And we had several events. There was one that was once a week. The strategic planners would confront me. Uh, you always do it in the morning while you're fresh, by the way. Because again, if you want to be somewhere six months from now, the four star has got to decide and make decisions now and decide how you're going to change different approaches. And then once a month, we had all the leaders of the lessons learned teams from the Army, the Marine Corps, Special Operations, Asymmetric Warfare Group, Counterinsurgency Center, and all of this would come in. But keep in mind, the lesson's not learned until it's actually incorporated in the big ideas, so in the campaign plan, whatever, and then communicated in various forms. That process is crucial. This construct, strategic leadership, 
And we have a number of cases in the book where it was performed very impressively. And frankly, there's a number of cases where that was not the case. Vietnam was one of those, again, where we didn't even really seem to understand the nature of that war, at least in terms of getting the big ideas and the strategy right, actually until 1968. We'd been involved there from about 1955 after the French defeated Dien Bien Phu. Talk about a bad big idea, by the way. The French command, which was very frustrated that the communists would not come to battle, that they were guerrilla, they were elusive, and so forth. So they decided, we'll create this really attractive base. It'll have a magnetic attraction. The communists will finally come to battle. And boy, did they ever at Dien Bien Phu. And of course, it was a historic defeat. French eventually surrendered, went into captivity. There was an agreement at Geneva to partition North and South Vietnam. And of course, they left. And that was the end of their colonial dreams in Indochina and Doshin. So this is really, really central. And you can apply it to everything. I'll very quickly do it for Netflix because it, it is a great case of this. And Reed Hastings, the recent CEO, original CEO of Netflix, was a brilliant strategic leader. I actually have discussed this construct with him. And it's very, very similar to what he has. Slightly different nomenclature, but very similar. So the first big idea for Netflix is we're going to put movies in the hands of customers without brick and mortar. So we're going to undercut Blockbuster. And that works out really, really well. Of course, Blockbuster eventually goes out of business. There's one left in Big Bend, Oregon. It's famously contrary, and they won't let their Blockbuster die. And so any of you who are feeling nostalgic and want to you know, have a tourist trip to see how it used to be back when we used to rent from brick and mortars, you can go out to Big Bend, Oregon and have the great experience. The second big idea was he realizes that in a sense, the context for his business has changed, the strategic context. All of a sudden, broadband speeds are fast enough. So the new big idea is we can have him download movies. So that's the new one. You communicate that, oversee it, get down here a couple of years later. How's that going? Well, we're doing better, more revenue. Everything's good. But other people are now doing what we're doing. Third big idea is massive. This is we're going to make our own content. $100 million on House of Cards alone, all these other iconic series that we all revisited during the early months of the pandemic. And so another vast success. That's the breakout moment really for Netflix. But then they go on from there and they decide, you know what, we're going to make major motion pictures. And they go out and buy not one, but two major movie studios. And they do that so well. Talk about a great metric. They get more Academy Award nominations three or four years ago than any other major motion picture studio. There was one issue, and I've raised this with him, about Brad Pitt playing General McChrystal in a movie. (laughs) It was just horrible. I mean, I've never, the only place I watch movies is on long plane flights, and I've I've never even been able to stay awake long enough to see where I actually enter that particular movie. I was played by the Australian actor that was in Gladiator. Russell Crowe. So I, you know, I said, look, Brad Pitt just didn't get Stan McChrystal. I mean, he marches around like a little wooden soldier. He's, you know, salutes awkwardly. He has no sense of humor. And I said, besides, I can't believe that Brad Pitt didn't hold out to play me. (laughs) Anyway, you get the idea here. But strategic leadership is crucial. And the truth is that any leader actually has to perform these four tasks. The difference is that the strategic leader has to get the biggest of the big ideas right because everyone else has to operate within that strategy, those big ideas selected by the strategic leader. And if that leader doesn't get it right, the enterprise is 
pretty doomed, frankly, in most cases, regardless of all the other great qualities that that leader may have, and regardless, frankly, in many cases, of what those below him or her might do. So your book, The Evolution of uh, Warfare, spans almost 80 years. I think we've talked about the war in Vietnam. That, uh, at least to my reckoning, is the conflict that had the biggest impact on the American psyche and on military thinking. And you've explained the failure in terms of strategic leadership. Let's fast forward to the present and talk about the current conflict. Turning first to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war now in its second year. In the book, you describe the conflict as, quote, strangely regressive in the evolution of warfare. How, how so? Well, I think Max Boot, the great Washington Post columnist, has captured this beautifully, where he's described Ukraine as the war in which all quiet on the Western Front meets Blade Runner. And because what you have are regressive elements. You have essentially World War I-style defenses, you know, defense in enormous depth, trenches, barbed wire, massive minefields. What the Russians established in the South is way beyond even their doctrine calls for many, many times deeper minefields, very, very carefully prepared. And, you know, for all of their shortcomings to that point, and there were many in virtually every aspect of this campaign, starting with the strategic leadership provided by Putin, which is seriously flawed. And by the way, contrast that with President Zelensky, who, you know, what's his first big idea? I don't want to ride. I want ammunition. That's a powerful big idea. I'm going to stay in Kiev. My family's going to stay in Kiev. We're going to defend Kiev to the end. We're going to mobilize the entire country. All men are going to stay in Ukraine. These are serious big ideas. And he's also got a very superb military. It's called commander in chief there as well. General Zeluzhny. I just spent over two hours with him the last time I was there about six weeks ago. And then his communication skills have been brilliant. Of course, he is an actor or was an actor. You know, you still act as a politician, even as a general. He was a comedian who played the president so effectively that he got elected president. And he had beautiful communication skills, positively Churchillian. And my co-author wrote the best single volume biography of Churchill, Walking with Destiny. And then his oversight of the big ideas, the implementation, you know, his example, he, on day one, he changes from a suit into this OD sweatshirt, variations on the theme, even when he speaks to our Congress, he wears that. By the way, he's the first wartime leader to speak to both houses of our Congress since uh, Churchill did uh, back in World War II. His energy, he's on the front lines. Again, the example, Putin's at the end of a long marble table and he's out in Bakhmut or Zaporizhia uh, in, in seeing the soldiers presenting medals and so on. He attracts great people. He's gotten rid of his share of folks over the course of the campaign as well. So all of that really very, very impressive. Uh, and then they have been a learning organization. They have been adapting and all the rest of that. And again, Putin, almost the opposite of this underestimated the Ukrainian and the American and Western response, overestimated the capabilities of his forces, flawed campaign plan. That's really more on the generals. But the idea that they could take Kiev in three days, topple the government, replace President Zelensky with a pro-Russian figure and go home to a victory parade proved to be a little bit of a mistake, shall we say. But they lost the battles of Kiev, Sumy, Chernihiv, Kharkiv, Kharkiv province, Kherson, west of the Dnipro. But then they learned. And to be fair, the defense that they put in in the south, it was overseen by a general named Surabikin, 
called the Suravikin line. Of course, he's already been fired by Putin, uh, moved on to something else. But that has been very formidable. But what you see is, again, a mix. World War I-style trenches, Cold War-era hardware, same Abrams tanks, Leopards on the German side, T-62, 64, 72, 80s on the, the Russian side. All this stuff, when I was a major brigade operations officer out there, was very familiar. But then you see cutting-edge stuff. And this is where the Blade Runner piece comes in. You're seeing rapid advances now with various forms of unmanned systems, both maritime and air drones in particular, that have been very effective. The Ukrainian-developed maritime drones have literally forced the Russian Black Sea Fleet to withdraw from the very important Crimean port of Sevastopol and move a greater distance have now actually done damage to that. And of course, on both sides, you see very effective use of drones. One of the challenges of getting through the minefields for the Ukrainians is that the Russians have drones right on top of them. They've tightened the sensor to shooter link, a lot of artillery, quite accurate. And so a very, very challenging problem for the Ukrainians. And they weren't able to achieve the kind of gains that they and we had all hoped that they might during the summer. So their commander now describes this as a stalemate, but has also laid out the various elements that could break that stalemate with our help, with their industrious innovation and so forth. There's one other aspect to this that I think is very important, actually, because it it bears a bit on what is going on here. And that is that this battlefield is uniquely transparent. It's the first ever war in which everyone has a smartphone, internet access, and social media onto which you can upload videos, photographs, and so forth. You have the same to a degree in Gaza, to be sure, although the internet access is not as reliable as is Elon Musk's Starlink, except when he didn't want the operation in Crimea to take place. So this is why DOD took over the funding of that. But that is quite important because I'm an absolute believer, and again, adhering to the laws of land warfare, the Geneva Convention, we had a sign on the wall, actually, in the op centers of each of these commands that I was privileged to have, that asked the question, is staring at me all the time in the staff, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? If the answer to that is no, you're supposed to go back and figure out how you get it to yes. If you still can't get it to yes, you're supposed to go sit under a tree until the thought passes. Um, But that is crucial. The importance of that, it's always important, but it's especially important if everybody is watching with smartphones and internet access and social media onto which they can display what it is that you are doing. That's crucial. So one quick question, then I want to move on to Gaza, but uh, staying in Ukraine, you alluded to and understand you've been to Ukraine within the last several weeks and were there earlier this year. Uh, What did you learn on the ground? What did you learn about how long the Ukrainians are going to be able to hold out in this state? Well, they're determined to continue. I mean, there's some somebody has said, you know, you can't find enough Ukrainians who want to talk about negotiations to even fill a wheelbarrow. They're just absolutely determined, although the mood is more sober now than it was prior to the start of the summer offensive. The casualties have been very tough. I made a point one of the nights that I was there to go out to the train station when the casualty train came in from the south. And that was sobering. Again, I've obviously had some experience in that regard, but to see all of these ambulances lined up 
and the casualties would go on to them and then they'd streak off into the night to the various hospitals with the blue lights flashing. And you have a whole city that's just full of flashing blue lights. Again, that's been very, very difficult. But their fortitude, their determination is absolutely unbreakable. And they are determined to liberate the 18% of their country that the Russians still occupy, which includes what they took back in 2014 Crimea and then that portion of the Southeast known as the Donbass. The challenge is, of course, that they're very dependent on U.S. and European and Western support. My hope, of course, is that our House of Representatives can come to grips with this. There is a bipartisan majority for support for Ukraine and further assistance there. There's a very strong bipartisan majority in the Senate. Obviously, the executive branch supports it. So again, I hope that we can do that. Obviously, it would be great to package it together with Israel, perhaps some additional uh, support for Taiwan and then the southern border while we're at it. But that's a domestic political issue, again, that, that is of grave concern to the Ukrainians. I mean, when I was there the last time, most of the questions I got were not this time about, you know, when will we get the longer range ATACMs or when will we get F-16s or when do you think the decision, actually the first time I think it was still about M1 tanks. Now it's what is going on in your House of Representatives. And they actually know the dynamics of the House better in many cases than probably most Americans do. So that's crucial. Let me then ask, because we're going to be running up against the time deadline. I want to get to Israel, which you mentioned. Sure. Of course, the war between Hamas and Israel broke out after your book went to yep. print, but I'm sure you've given it a good deal of thought, and I'm sure folks yep. here would be interested in your take on that conflict and sure. the direction it's headed in. So let's talk again in this intellectual construct. What are the big ideas? Well, the biggest of the big ideas is an Israeli determination, as announced by the prime minister and minister of defense, that they have to destroy Hamas, that they assess that Hamas is irreconcilable, the entire organization. So it's not like the Sunni insurgents in Iraq where you could actually reconcile with the rank and file. They were most, they were more wayward lads or chameleons or what have you, but the irreconcilables were the leaders and you had to capture or kill them. So this is, Hamas therefore is akin to the Islamic State. It's an extremist army and it has to be destroyed. And by the way, they're determined to dismantle the political wing of Hamas as well. Those are very substantial tasks. The context for this, my co-author and I think, are more challenging than any urban operation that we have chronicled or done, in, in my case, if you will, since 1945, keeping in mind that during the surge in Iraq in particular, we cleared major cities, Ramadi, three, 400,000, Fallujah finally got it right. By the way, the first site that we secured during the Fallujah operation was the hospital. So for all those that are saying, you should never do anything around a hospital. Absolutely, you should. You should secure it and you should actually then provide assistance to it, make sure it's functioning, but also make sure it's not a source of disinformation, which these can be if they're still held by extremists. And then also that the extremists that come to check in, you're going to send those over to different hospitals that serve your detainee facilities. But so these two big ideas are very, very significant. And if you're conducting it in a very densely populated urban area, which still has hundreds of thousands of civilians in it against an enemy who uses civilians as human shields, who has 239 hostages who will be used similarly, an enemy that doesn't wear a uniform, that knows the area very, very intimately, like the back of his hand, unlike, say, the Islamic State in Mosul. Uh, where they were, most of those were not Moslawis, they were from outside. And an enemy who's willing to blow himself up to take 
you with them. That's very pernicious. Some in this room have experienced that. That means that every individual has to be kept at arm's length because there could be a suicide vest underneath and that every vehicle has to be kept at distance because there's suicide vehicles, suicide car bombs, as well as suicide vest bombs. And again, as I said, a very, very pernicious threat that causes that soldiers have to be very quick to take action, which means that there can be very quick mistakes uh, made as well if people don't obey what the soldiers say and the communication is not clear. You also have 300 miles of tunnel. You have, again, an enemy who puts headquarters, uh, weapons, caches, infrastructure, again, under refugee camps, hospitals, in mosques, and so on. So very, very challenging. And of course, a lot in here know to do this, to destroy an enemy, means doctrinally you have to render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without reconstitution. Keep in mind reconstitution, because that's going to be the toughest of the tasks, is preventing that after this is done. And to do this, you have to clear every building, every floor, every room, every cellar, every tunnel, and you then have to hold it. So you have to clear, hold, and build. In fact, the construct for this should be a counterinsurgency operation, not just a conventional military operation, because you should be thinking about from the beginning about the need to carry out stability operations tasks, not just offense and some defense. And it reminds you of the importance of hearts and minds and of that question that I said was always on the wall. This is a very challenging mission. I think that they can conduct it, although there's a lot of different clocks ticking here, including an economic clock in Israel that hasn't been mentioned all that much. But there's 8% of the Israeli workforce in uniform right now. How long can you continue that without this being unaffordable, unsustainable in that regard, not to mention global public opinion, U.S. support, which is crucial and is unwavering. But again, all of these different factors make this very, very challenging. And then, of course, it's the post-conflict. And our post-conflict planning, of course, after we got to Baghdad and toppled the regime, turned out to be inadequate. We then compounded the problems with seriously bad ideas, firing the entire Iraqi military without telling them how we would help them provide for their families. So you created hundreds of thousands of Iraqis whose incentive is to oppose the new Iraq rather than to support it. That violates that question big time. And then compounded that by firing the Ba'ath Party. Yes, it was Saddam's party. And yes, the top one, two, maybe even three levels deserve to be captured or killed. But when you got to level four, which was included in the debathification without an agreed reconciliation process order, uh, you ended up with tens of thousands of the very bureaucrats, Western educated in many cases, secular, who we needed to run a country that we didn't understand. There's going to be a parallel to that in Gaza because there are tens of thousands of essentially government workers that they're going to need to help turn the lights back on and restore basic services. But who does that? That's a very open question. And most, more importantly than that, who ensures that Hamas cannot reconstitute and come back as the problem that has prompted all of this in the first place? Finally, I think there should be a final big idea added in addition to what we've laid out and what we, we believe is needed. And that is a vision for the Palestinian people, not just in Gaza, that will say that their life will be vastly better when Hamas is gone, but also, frankly, for the people in the West Bank. 
you. So I know there are folks out there dying to ask questions. Ask for folks to raise their hand or stand up if they'd like to ask a question. Never been a shortage of questions from this crowd. Yeah, Lauren Hershey, I've been active here, but I'm strictly a soft power guy, not a military guy. Tell me about the aircraft carrier battle groups that are present and how that influences the strategic thinking, please. Yeah, I think the aircraft carrier task forces that are out there, there's one in the Eastern Med and then the other, presumably the carrier will probably be kept outside the Gulf with some of the ships perhaps inside. It's a little bit confining inside. Those are there for several different purposes. One is deterrence, just different elements that might enter this conflict. Uh, think hard and long about that, especially Iran. I don't think Iran wants to get into it with the U.S., but they certainly won't, don't want to do it when we have two carrier task forces in the general vicinity and we've augmented our air forces on the ground and our air and ballistic missile defenses and force protection and other capabilities. It is also actually for defense. It's publicly known that one of our ships in the Red Sea actually intercepted the ballistic missiles that the Houthis, an Iranian-supported Shia group in Yemen, shot towards Israel. So there's that component of it as well. And then if we have to get into real war fighting, that's a pretty potent capability, needless to say. A lot of aircraft and a lot of other capabilities, again, including the onboard ballistic missile and early warning systems that they have that can all be cobbled together and integrated with those that are on the ground. That's what's going on there. The concern, of course, is that the war could widen. The most worrisome aspect of that would be if the Lebanese Hezbollah, again, a massive Shia force in southern Lebanon, funded, trained, equipped, armed, and so forth by Iran, were to use some of the 150,000 rockets and missiles that it has pointed at Israel. That would be very, very challenging for Israel. The Iron Dome, David Sling, Arrow, Patriot, and other, again, air and ballistic missile defense systems that are integrated in Israel are extraordinary. And we provided our additional Iron Dome batteries and interceptors, but they can be overwhelmed. And that kind of number could overwhelm them. But the thinking is that that would be an act of suicide on the part of Hezbollah and that they would get an even worse response from Israel than they did in 2006. The original assessment in 2006 was that the Israeli Air Force had overpromised and underdelivered. Reassessments of that subsequent, including when I was a Central Command Commander and then when I was CIA, just kept increasing the amount of damage that we realized was done to Hezbollah. And we don't think that they want to revisit that. They will launch dozens in, perhaps. Israel can generally deal with that. They'll respond roughly in kind, but I don't think they'll get in. The Shia militia supported by Iran in, in Iraq and Syria have been launching drones and some rockets at our forces. We have been responding to that. I, I think that's probably going to continue like that. There's a bit possibility of more, but that's where having all these extra forces really comes in if that's necessary. Let's see if we can fit in a few more, Charlie. And thanks for all you did uh, when you were in an Air Force uniform, Charlie, even when you were criticizing me about not giving enough credit to air power. <laughs> I asked somebody one time, who, who is this guy? And they said, they said he's an Air Force lawyer. I said, he's much better than the F-16 pilots at defending the Air Force honor. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. The book is tremendous. And just for everybody, I recommend the audio version, the hard copy, 
because in the audio version, General Petraeus actually narrates the chapters on Iraq and Afghanistan, and it, it just gives it a power that would be difficult to get otherwise. What I wanted to ask you, you've, you've talked about the difficulty of urban warfare, and I think that everybody's gone to school on what the success quote that Hamas seems to be having. So we're going to see more and more of this in the future. From the law of armed conflict perspective, you can fully comply, as I think the Israelis are, but lose the narrative. Is yeah. there anything that we can yep. do to try to hold the narrative better than it's been in the past? Look, we grappled with this enormously, even more in Afghanistan, I think, than we did uh, in Iraq, uh, in part because, frankly, the Afghan president was so sensitive to this uh, and because he was of the same ethnicity of the that was the bulk of the insurgents uh, and extremists, Pashtu. Whereas in Iraq, frankly, you had a Shia prime minister and the biggest of the threats, at least for the first year of the surge, was Sunni extremists, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then Sunni insurgents. And he was a little less sensitive to that. It became a bit trickier when we took on the Shia militia supported by Iran. This is a huge challenge, Charlie, and you know that Stan McChrystal and I in particular came, tried to come to grips with this and to ensure that our soldiers never feel that we are forcing them to fight with one hand tied behind their back or anything like that, but also to make sure that you use just the force that's necessary no more and that you strictly adhere, again, to the rules of engagement that are obviously founded on the laws of land warfare, and then often have some interpretation to provide specificity, as we did with the tactical guidelines that we used uh, in Afghanistan. As you all know well, this is all about military necessity versus proportionality. I tend to agree with you, Charlie, but the optics, of course, of what we're seeing are, are rugged. They're tough. There is always loss of innocent civilian life in urban warfare. There's enormous destruction. Uh, it's very hard. I don't think either of us can truly with great precision say that we understand precisely what the target is, what the targeting ramifications were, what the munitions were, how they modeled it and all the rest of this, the stuff that you go through before you carry out an operation, especially one in an urban area. But I think you have to really then be very, very conscious of, again, you're looking at that sign on the wall. And you have to keep asking that of yourself constantly. There's the front page of the Washington Post test that we used to apply as well. It's not only that we want to be legal, we also want to be responsible. We want to pass the front page. We asked that actually in, at KKR. There's no right answer to it. The key is that you are really keenly aware of it, that you're rigorously trying to apply everything, starting with the foundational laws, the rules of engagement that are built on those, and then the way you're applying it. And there are times when you have to take more risk for your own force to ensure that you are not putting the civilian population at, at greater risk. And those are just tough calls. And there's no right general answer other than to understand in the way that I've tried to establish the principles for that. Why don't we wrap there? I just want to thank you for being with us, oh, for sharing great. your perspective. Once again, we have the benefit of your service to our country. I want to thank you. Thanks. Great to be with you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates 
or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.